Thank you uh, for the opportunity to be with you. It's so good to see your faces, even by screen, and to see so many of you. Um, just fills my heart, uh, because when I think of churches that are trying to do what you're doing with sharing your faith, about being family and supporting one another, um, in terms of growing deeper, a community Bible church is one of those places where I see that happening. And I regularly hear testimonies as I'm with you of people who are saying, uh, because you were there, church, um, I was encouraged and held when I needed to be held by the body of Christ. Because you were there, um, I've had opportunities to hear about Jesus. Because you were there, um, I've grown deeper in my faith and I continue to follow Jesus. So um, it's such a pleasure uh, and a humbling pleasure to be with you. Let's pray as we approach God's word today. Lord, uh, I give you thanks for the ability to gather even by Zoom, um, knowing that uh, a few years ago, this would not have been a reality, uh, but it can now be commonplace. That what uh, brothers and sisters around the world, um, in many cases, in, uh, particularly in places where the church is persecuted, uh, meeting together with this many people online to sing your praise, to hear your word read, to pray together, uh, would be a dream beyond imagining, would feel like heaven itself. Uh, because they often work isolated. Um, yet, uh, for us, this is a condescension to the time, and we are grateful. And so, Lord, we join with the church around the world today, um, the church in Asia and Africa that I suspect has long since concluded its morning and afternoon worship, um, and maybe either headed to evening worship or to a meal celebrating your goodness, um, to the, with the church in Latin America, which has already started to worship and in anticipation of joining with the church both in the Western United States um, and then um, out into the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, this is the Lord's day and you have made it and you've called your church from every nation to worship and gather with you. And so we are grateful for the opportunity to do it this today by Zoom and with the church around the world uh, through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, as we think about what evangelism looks like in this season, it's very unusual, right? Because so many of our strategies, particularly at CBC, have been devoted to how do we engage inside the community? Um, how do we find and be with people whose faith strengthen, uh, whose faith questions provoke our own, with whom we can draw um, them into new conversations around the faith? And so, as we're looking through the book of Acts, I think part of what we see is the relentless creativity of the church, um, adapting to the circumstances wherever they are. So I know when InterVarsity was facing a lot of campus access challenges, part of what I did was, as I took on the responsibility of leading that, I started reading through the book of Acts. because so I thought, if there's a book that I need to deeply believe in, as we think about places where InterVarsity is being um, refused recognition or campus or kicked off campus, uh, it's the book of Acts. And you begin to watch the church meeting in synagogues, then, or sorry, meeting in the temple and then pushed out into the synagogues and pushed out into community centers where we aren't quite yet in our own reading of Acts here at the church. But wherever they were, in whatever venue they could find and whatever venue they could meet in, they began to share about Jesus. And as we come to chapter 14, Remember, um, last week, Dick preached on what it looked like in Pisidian Antioch as Paul taught and reminded them of God's great work um, in calling a people to himself. And you saw toward the end of chapter 13 that the entire city turned out 
in anticipation and hope of what Paul was speaking about. But then those who rejected the message created enough of an uproar that Paul said, that's it. I'm dusting, um, wiping the dust of my feet off of the city. I'm going to the Gentiles. And then he leaves for Iconium. And that's where we pick up today's story. What strikes me about um, Paul and Barnabas in the chapter, in this chapter, part of chapter 14, verses one through seven, is I think the relentlessness that they have. Um, whether they're given an opportunity or whether they experience opposition, they are relentless in beginning, in continuing to follow Jesus. So looking at it, verse one, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brother, brethren. Um, what I love is these two words, at least in the English translation, as usual. Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the synagogue. Now, you'll remember in Pisidian Antioch, they had said, we're done with you. Uh, you're so hard-hearted, uh, Jews of Pisidian we're going to go to the Gentiles. And so then they leave and go to Iconium. But as usual, when they arrive at the city, the first thing they do is go to the synagogue. They go despite prior rejection, right? They've been rejected time and time again in this missionary journey. And yet they keep going back to the synagogue, even though synagogues have opposed them and threatened them, right? Paul was opposed in Damascus. He was opposed in Jerusalem. He's been opposed at Pisidian Antioch. And yet, as usual, he goes back to the synagogue. Um, and I suspect this is less you know, uh, what Paul says in Rome to the Jews first, so that we always go to the synagogue because we believe the gospel goes to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, though that may have been some of his theological underpinning. But what strikes me in this situation is um, his and Barnabas's willingness to go back to the place where they've been so frequently rejected and experienced opposition. So take our, for a moment, the, um, why they might have chosen the synagogue. The fact that they keep returning to synagogues strikes me now. Synagogues are places of great openness, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But as I think about the challenges that I face in evangelism, and that I suspect you all face in evangelism, and that the church regularly faces in evangelism, at least here in a post-Christian West, it's this. Um, the fear of rejection is so strong that even after a small rebuff, many of us just stop. We are so preconditioned to be afraid of being told, I'm not interested. Keep your religion to yourself. I don't want to, I don't want to be associated with your kind of people that all of a sudden we back away. And then we're quite reluctant to return to that conversation or to that relationship with a little bit more about the gospel. And yet for Paul and Barnabas, even after being threatened and rejected at Pisidian Antioch, at Damascus and at Jerusalem, it says Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue, that there's a kind of relentless, dogged determination to continue to go in the face of opposition and rejection without fear. And I wonder what it would look like for us to have that same sort of posture as we think about the gospel. Because often I suspect 
it's not the first, second, or even third, fourth, or fifth conversation or rejection that has to be the last one. I think of a friend of mine, um, uh, John Teeter, who is now a pastor in Los Angeles, uh, who has an amazing ministry in East Los Angeles in the community. John got to college um, as a very distant from God, uh, biracial Korean American white uh, college student. Um, at UCLA, um, he had no interest in God at all. Um, a deep interest in partying and having a good time after a very difficult childhood. And regularly, he said, as uh, he shares his own testimony, um, the Christians on the floor in his dorm would regularly invite him to Bible study. Every week, almost, year after year after year, because he kept ending up in dorms at which there were Christian Bible studies, intervarsity and other folk. And so everyone would be like, John, you should come to Bible study. And every week he would go, absolutely not. John, do you want to come visit a fellowship? No interest at all, right? I mean, John was as enthusiastic about rejecting the gospel as his friends were at inviting him to engage the gospel. At the end of his freshman year, um, John had been invited to 30 or 40 different Bible studies, large group meetings, conferences, and camps because a group of Christians had formed and that dormed and continued to pray for him. And I love the fact that they didn't give up. And John says uh, in his own conversion story, it was the summer of, um, it was the last week of, um, after finals week of my freshman year, and he was one of the last people in the dorm. And at his, um, John was a little notorious for um, creating parties, like uh, a party he would create would be the shaving cream party where they would fill the hallways and the bathrooms with shaving cream, you know, a foot deep. I mean, it was, it was that kind of dorm, and John was that kind of friend and rabble rouser. And he um, blearily got up, it was the last uh, end of finals week, and walked into the bathroom, which as you can imagine, in a boys' dorm, um, and really they were boys, it wasn't a men's dorm, uh, and the boys' laboratory, um, it was just a disaster. And um, as he looked, there was one of his classmates quietly cleaning the bathroom, sweeping up the mess, wiping up the shaving cream that had been plastered over all the walls, and John's response was, why are you doing that? And the young man looked up at him and said, uh, Jesus came as a servant. And so part of my desire to follow him is I want to be a servant to this dorm and to the cleaning people who are going to have to clean up this mess after we move out later this afternoon. And John said, it was the first time after an entire year of being invited that something clicked in his head and all of a sudden he thought, I might be interested in a Jesus like that. I love the fact that for John, it took 30 or 40 invitations in different ways. Do you want to come to a Bible study? Do you want to hang out and play ultimate Frisbee with some Christians? Do you want to come to large group? Do you want to go to a conference? For John, the key that unlocked it was seeing somebody who followed Jesus as Savior, Lord, and took on the mantle of servant that opened the door to his eyes. But he said, it was probably all those other conversations which made it plausible for me to believe that there might be a Jesus enough to want to engage 
with this intervarsity leader who was cleaning the floor of that bathroom. <clears throat> I love the fact that the folk in that dorm never gave up on him. That they continued to engage in conversation week after week, month after month, in spite of rejection, in spite of dismissal, in spite of John's mocking, until the point that he had the opportunity to come to go to Jesus. For Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. I wonder where we need to go as usual, consistently and faithfully, without being worried about rejection, but open and expectant that God might be at work. Now, Paul and Barnabas, of course, go to the synagogue in part, I suspect, because they were convinced that the gospel comes to the Jew first and so would go there, but also because the synagogues were places where people with deep spiritual interests would congregate. This was a place where the Jewish people came to worship. And so they knew there was spiritual openness there. They knew that there were people who were already talking about what Yahweh had done in the Old Testament and were anticipating and waiting for what Yahweh would do in the current age to liberate Israel and to demonstrate his glory and to call the nations to worship at Jerusalem. So they go to the synagogue because this is the place where the conversations that are most deeply in the hearts of the people and that most deeply resonate with the themes that, Paul, uh, that Dick preached on last week as he walked through the sermon that Paul preached would, deep, would drop and actually make some sense. It makes me wonder in our own context today, where are the places where people with spiritual interests congregate? Now, in many places, it's churches, and frankly, I often wonder if um, one of the biggest evangelistic opportunities we have is to re-evangelize the churches here in the United States. Um, what does it mean to have people who think that they're talking about spiritual things actually encounter the living God in all of his glory and holiness, hear about his grace, experience the forgiveness of Jesus, and submit to him as Lord, such that the Holy Spirit has free access and begins to move among them? Right, that um, in England, um, Peter and Julian might remember. I think it was was it 1990 or 2000 was the year of evangelism, and part of it was how do we re-evangelize um, the English church so that we can mobilize people who are already showing up to declare the glory of God in those places. But most of us probably are not called to evangelize another church right now. Um, but it did make me wonder in a socially distanced era, right, where the normal places that we would go are now closed. So um, I know we've tried to create places at CBC for people to gather who have questions and who have interest about spiritual things. And we've done movie nights and we've done other things. Others of you have moved into community spaces, but in a socially distant era, what could we do? Where do people gather to discuss, to discuss their deepest spiritual interests? What would be the modern day equivalent of a synagogue, but not a synagogue itself? As I was thinking and praying about it, um, two places occurred to me in this particular season. Um, one of which, um, well, and both of them are on social media since we at least have access to that reasonably safely, physically, if not necessarily emotionally or spiritually. But um, as I've been watching on Facebook and on Twitter and the other places um, I haunt uh, as part, as that's part of what I do for university is just monitor what's going on in the world. Um, Politics have totally consumed most people now. And I, I suspect for most of you, if my recollection of 
um, my visits with CBC are correct. Politics is an issue that we normally we back a little bit away from. It's so divisive and so angry and so intense that most of us politely just kind of try to move aside that and we have other kinds of conversations. But I was thinking about a comment a friend of mine made. His name is Michael Ware. Um, he's been involved in politics much of his life. Um, he served in the Obama administration as, uh, as the youngest director of faith outreach um, in modern political history. And after a season at the administration, um, he's, he stepped away for a bit and then began to reflect on his experience. And he said this, one of the reasons um, I suspect that politics have become so heated, so divisive, so partisan, and so angry is that we have taken something which is a tool and made it an ultimate thing. Given the vast spiritual emptiness that we experience in our lives, we've decided to fill it with politics. Because that we as a nation have lost faith that God acts and that God changes things, we've decided that only politicians can make a difference in our lives. And therefore, because we've replaced um, politics for God, we've attributed to politics far too much power. And because we've attributed too much power to it, we will fight for that power with everything that we have. Which describes deeply, I suspect, the world that we live in, doesn't it? Especially as we head toward a presidential election in just a few months. And if you look at the headlines, if you look at social media posts, it's all described in terms that really only fit ultimate things, right? The future of the nation is at stake. Now, you may believe, and it may be true that the culture of the nation will be profoundly affected by the political election to come, and it will be as it, every election does. But at some point when ultimate language is used, about politics. What I think it reflects is what Michael Ware put his finger on. We've made politics an idol that we worship because we believe that politics will deliver what we no longer believe God will. So it made me wonder, is in fact the deeply intense conversation around politics actually um, a deep spiritual longing being misdirected that the church could engage not by arguing the politics, but by engaging the deep ultimate longings that are expressed there. What do people want? And what, is, what cries are emerging as we listen to the political season, right? Both parties um, appeal to fear. Does the church have anything to say about fear? Does God have any words to offer that would alleviate fears so that we could engage with people as other creatures made in God's image, loved by God and delighted over by God? Both parties um, not only play on fear and expect fear to motivate us, both of them are calling people to hope for a different kind of future than we have now. Does not the Bible offer us a vision of what the future could be like? Of communities actually deeply engaged, um, as Fred prayed today, in shalom. 
And if a broad understanding of what shalom looked like were painted for people, would that change the ways about how we engage politics, but also what the people who are longing for prosperity, order, security, whatever it is, think about what they're doing, right? Is there a place where if we saw the political conversation as actually a place where people of deep spiritual disquiet and interest were expressing themselves, however distortedly, could we find people who we need to talk to? It occurred to me as I was thinking about social media a bit, um, beyond politics, obviously, um, it's the sense of community. And so uh, in my own life, um, I've tried to engage my town's um, Facebook page. Now, I want to say that my town's Facebook page, and I may have mentioned this before when I've been with you, um, has assured me that the doctrine of the fall is actually true and total depravity is absolutely real. I, it, it's a morass of people being intense and ugly with, um, well, it's intense and ugly and then a lot of lost pets. So people lose pets um, nearly daily, it seems, or at least four or five times daily in my community. Then there's intense ugliness around politics and race, um, concern about the school, people trying to sell things, and then occasionally a small glimmer. Um, so over the last few months, on my Facebook page, when I can bear to go to it, and I try to check it at least once or twice a day uh, of my town, um, I've been looking for opportunities to leaven the conversation in different ways. So at the beginning of spring, um, one of the things I did was just typed into the Facebook page. Um, you know, we've been trapped at home for uh, weeks now. Uh, as you look around town, um, is there a spot that whose beauty just causes you to gasp or to catch your breath? Would you post a picture of that? Because I could really use seeing something beautiful today. Just dropped it in there. It was fascinating. There are about 30 or 40 people who suddenly posted pictures of... Um, a flower bed that was growing, a tree that was blossoming, et cetera. Um, a couple weeks later, um, I think I posted something like, I have fantastic neighbors. Um, when we moved in, my, you know, the neighbors to my left uh, oriented me to the town, offered to lend me equipment that I needed. Um, it made an enormous difference in me feeling like I was at home. Tell me about your best neighbor story. Because so often we, on, and I, I say, so often on this page, what I hear instead are people complaining about neighbors where branches have dropped, leaves aren't being picked up, et cetera. Tell me, neighbors, 20, 30 different people posted, I love my neighbors. Here's why I love them. Um, during religious holidays, um, I try to post um, acknowledgments of religious communities in my town. So for the Muslim and Hindu and Jewish holidays, um, as we, especially as we begin to move toward uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I always try to post something on our Facebook page. Hey, to the Jewish members of our community, I just want to acknowledge, uh, may you have a blessed Yom Kippur as you do that, right? I tried to post something for Easter and it totally got uh, taken out by the moderator. So I think there's a little uh, concern about Christian privilege, but uh, slowly over time, um, I'm trying to leaven that conversation to ask questions about what kind of community do we want to live in? And so during a tax conversation, um, people were complaining. I said, hey, totally appreciate it. everyone thinks taxes are too high. Who doesn't, right? Um, I'm curious, uh, what values do you want to see drive this conversation about what services we should offer and what services we should pull back from? Right, small things. And um, what was fascinating is, you know, we were posting, I don't know, something I was posting at one point, and um, 
somebody uh, said, you always seem to be very positive in your posts and encouraging. I just want you to know we've noticed. Now, I share that not to go, oh, Greg, what a joy and beam of light he is, because you all know me better than that. That's not necessarily true. But over time, even in the morass of social media, an intentional attempt both to be kind and to point to something bigger than the current squabbles actually made a difference. And it's about a 14,000 member Facebook group. Um, I've raised issues occasionally uh, judiciously around other values around justice, but there's been a lot of conversation. So I'm looking for a new way in. I wonder, um, I was on social media briefly before service. Um, Austining a town hall is an actual Facebook group. There's only about two to three posts a day. Scarborough Church regularly posts its um, sermons there, but I wonder what other kind of conversation you could have beyond the parrot that was lost two days ago. Um, there's a parent group for most school districts. Parent groups right now in most school districts are filled with um, terrified people trying to figure out choices for their children or parents who are very concerned. What are ways that we could engage that conversation substantively and graciously? One of the reasons I think about these kind of things is, um, and I think I may have mentioned this in a prior sermon, um, about three or four years ago, I was called by a Christian newspaper who said, hey, I want to get InterVarsity's take on Harvard's sex week. I said, oh, I, I apologize. I'm a little unfamiliar with it. What is that? And they said, it's a week-long extracurricular activity at Harvard University um, where they have um, extracurricular uh, seminars on everything from uh, academic conversations about sexuality to demonstrations of sex toys to, um, you know, pornography. Uh, and then that's discussed. On a class. I mean, right, it's that kind of event. And he said, what does InterVarsity think about that? And I took a moment to pray because I suspected that journalists really wanted me to go, what a terrible, you know, debauched thing. Um, and the response I had instead was, you know, um, I'm both grieved and hopeful. And he, he said, what? What do you mean grieved and hopeful? I said, um, I'm grieved that they're settling for so little. And I'm hopeful that the longings being expressed that week get pointed in the right direction. And the reporter said, tell me more. And I said, well, um, you know, the biblical story around human sexuality is that it's the deepest connection point of intimacy, trust, and commitment that a human being should have. And um, the biblical language, right, in the Old Testament was to know someone, to know them deeply and thoroughly, both in your youth and in your old age, when um, flesh is tight and um, beautiful, and then to delight in every wrinkle that you've shared together over time, right? That every gray hair is a mark of beauty because of what we survived together. Um, and it's been reduced from um, knowing to um, in the 60s, 50s, 70s, right? making love. So it became a production thing. And now it's just friends with benefits. It's, you know, something that you negotiate for, um, like at a job. I said, it's so debased from what it could be. And I'm grieved that they would settle for technology and technique when what's really being offered is transcendence, because this points to the relationship that Jesus has with his church. And the report said, okay, I wasn't expecting this. I said, but right, if they're willing to settle for technique and um, technology rather than transcendence, it leads me to believe that they still are longing for something bigger. Um, they're longing for something deeper and more real. And I think the church has an opportunity to engage that. And after I hang up, hung up with the reporter, I gave a call to my colleagues at Harvard. I said, hey, tell me about what's going on there because I, I need a little more background. 
And the Harvard chapter said, you know, incidentally, we just started a Bible study on the Song of Songs. We totally had forgotten that sex week was coming up. It's so ordinary here. But uh, we decided to do a Bible study on Song of Songs, but God perfectly ordained that it was this week. And we're inviting people to actually look at a transcendent, beautiful um, section of scripture that might capture their longings in a different way. So I immediately called the reporter, you should go talk to my colleagues. They're doing a Bible study on the Song of Songs. And the reporter's like, I've never heard of a Bible study on the Song of Songs. And I said, I know. And that's part of the, why they're settling for technique and technology rather than transcendence. Let's do something about that. Where are the spiritual longings being expressed in our community today, distorted as they may be by the culture, that as Christians, we should go to as usual to begin to engage that. Well, let me move on. Um, Paul and Barnabas experience as usual opposition as well, right? Because almost immediately it says in verse two, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly of the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And then the community is further divided. Um, and then Paul and Barnabas eventually leave. Um, it's fascinating to me that as people respond, opposition begins immediately. And that what's I thought interesting is the way it's described as the Jews who cho chose not to believe, who refused to believe, stirred up other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. I think the, often this surprises us a little bit. But um, I thought it was interesting that the response was that they poisoned the minds of the Gentiles, and then later they moved toward plotting against um, the disciples, right? So there's poisoning and plotting. And the reality is this happens a lot. I see that often in the university. I'm not a person who deeply believes there's a cabal of you know, university professors who are like, I can't wait to disabuse people of their faith in Jesus. There are some professors like that. They're far rarer than I think movies or popular media would have us believe. <clears throat> but there is a systemic attempt, I think, in our culture, at least here in the United States now, certainly in Europe, um, which attempts to make it implausible to be a Christian, either by associating Christianity with the worst excesses of the church which is partially legitimate. We've certainly failed. We can own that as a church because we believe in sin and we know why we need to confess. And by creating a universe which is so distant from any belief in God that God seems implausible, the belief in God seems ridiculous. This is certainly true of people who've left the church. I, I see on um, social media frequently those who've walked away from evangelical or traditional expressions of Christianity who are now just antagonistic to anything that happens, uh, who delight in every mistake that's being made by the church, who I think are poisoning the minds of other people against the ability to meet Jesus. And for Paul and Barnabas, this happens as usual. What strikes me about Paul and Barnabas, though, is, um, at least in the NIV translation, that first word in verse 3, right? Um, people's minds are being poisoned. So, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, 
speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Um, because they were experiencing opposition, Paul and Barnabas chose to stay. They stayed longer and engaged more deeply. For this reason, it could be said, right, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. Um, both uh, in response to this opposition, because they see an opportunity. Maybe one more word about opposition. I think this surprises us a little bit because um, we assume the message of God's grace should be received with joy and hope. In fact, that's because that's been our experience, right? That for most of us, we heard about the good news of Jesus and then we just said yes. And it's difficult now for many of us who've been believers longer to go, why would somebody say no to something so beautiful, so true, so hopeful, and so life-giving? Um, this is why we need new converts in our midst all the time, because we need people who will say, you know what? It was not easy to say yes to Jesus. And it's fresh in my mind why it wasn't easy. It's still not easy, right? Um, but we're talking in this passage about, in verse 2, people who refuse to believe and who've rejected the gospel and who've rejected Jesus. So that this isn't just hardness and unaware, a lack of awareness. These are people who've heard the claims, who've thought through them, and who've said, I refuse to engage. Why would you reject the word of God's grace? I want to suggest that in part because to believe in the grace offered us in Jesus Christ requires us to believe in the justice and the wrath of Jesus as he judges sin. Because to believe in grace implies judgment. Because to believe in the grace of Jesus requires submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of your life in the hopes that he will use us to transform every area of society to reflect more of his glory and his justice and his righteousness. Because ultimately, while the gospel unites a diverse people um, in Jesus Christ, it also divides the world into those who follow Jesus and those who do not. Um, in fact, our response to God's grace is the point of ultimate and eternal division of all of humanity, according to what scripture says. Ultimately, when the universe stands before the throne of the Lord God Almighty, the question will be, did you accept the grace offered in Jesus Christ or did you not? And that will be the final dividing point. It shouldn't surprise us that proclamations of the grace of God ultimately result in some division. Because even though it's tremendous good news for those of us who say yes, um, it's clearly the point at which many other people say no. And I want to suggest it's in light of this ultimate and eternal division that should shape our posture toward those who reject the gospel and to those who are poisoning other people against it and to those who are plotting against it in the places that they are. And I think it should shape our posture in this way. We should be filled with grief and pity and longing for them to repent rather than being angry or dismissive. We may be angered that they refuse to give Jesus the honor he's due because we're zealous and jealous for the name of the Lord. But an overriding concern, I think, should be grief and heartbreak for them. And I think far too often Christians um, are just dismissive or angry. We demonize them or we minimize them. And yet, if we thought about what they were doing and committing themselves to and the eternal consequences of that, I hope that our response would not be anger or dismissiveness or frustration at them, but instead our hearts would be broken for them. 
they aren't opposing us, though that may be the secondary outcome. They're choosing to reject the grace that is in Jesus and their lostness and their desire to invite people into their lost experience should cause us to weep for them, to grow in our love and compassion for them, to intercede for them as people who love them. And I think that posture of love and compassion, of longing, would change the tone as we engage people who dismiss the gospel. So Paul responds along with Barnabas, and rather than turning away, they redouble their efforts. Eventually, the persecution gets so great, um, they're threatened with potential stoning that they eventually leave Iconium. And I'm not sure how they discern when is it best to stay and to engage as in verse three, and when is it best to leave um, as in verse six. But what's striking to me is that whether Barnabas or Paul stay, the Iconian Christians who came to faith in Paul have no option. They're still there. Right? Paul needs to move on. That's how the book, this book of Acts is structured to show the growth of the church. But what we often forget in Paul's meandering about is the communities that he established remain to continue to witness in spite of the opposition Paul experienced, in spite of the persecution he experienced, in spite of the potential death that he was threatened by, the Iconium Christians have no option to go. They stay. They continue to witness and probably continue to experience the persecutions that Paul experiences in large part, but escapes here. Paul may have been threatened with death, and so he leaves, but the Iconium Christians are going to still be there with the same people who are plotting against them. It's, in fact, this kind of, the missionaries may need to leave, but the Christians locally will have an opportunity to stay that, right, has changed the um, trajectory of the church in China. Many people have talked about that. Um, I just saw a report um, on the news this week that a non-Christian serving organization now estimates there are 1 million Christians living in Iran. Um, And it's not a missionary group saying this, though it confirms what missionaries have often said. Um, It's a non-Christian group that did a survey of, was it 75,000 Iranians? Or it was a large number, um, the majority of whom were in Iran. And they said, we believe there are at least a million Christians now in Iran worshiping. Um, Even as leaders have left, even as missionaries have been excluded from the country since 1979, the church continues to grow. Because people stayed. And as usual, they seek out people who are interested in spiritual conversations. As usual, they experience an opposition. And as usual, they continue to follow Jesus. And my prayer for you in the lovely and yet difficult spiritual terrain of Westchester County is that as usual, you'll go find places to share the gospel. As usual, you will not be deterred by opposition or rejection, but as usual, you'll testify to the beautiful grace of Jesus Christ. And with tears and longing in your eyes and in your hearts to demonstrate what community looks like and welcome them in. Let me pray for us. Father, um, so much of the ways I think about evangelism are face-to-face, long conversations um, in person, and that's not possible easily right now. So I pray, would you help my friends um, 
at CBC find places, whether in social media or at a picnic in a backyard while the weather is still good, in a conversation about school, um, in a political group organizing event, or just um, in the ways our towns organize and speak to each other on social media to find opportunities to point somehow to the grace that we have found in Jesus Christ. Would we intrigue people by our commitment to your goodness, our confidence in the beauty and our hope that you are calling together a new community that will reflect what it means that we live in Shalom with you and with one another and with this world. So Father, continue to shape us as a people, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.